Okay, so I'm a bit late with this one. But this goes back to Sunday this weekend. That would have been Sunday the 20th of May. We've had this argument resurrected again. And it's one that was... I've certainly uh, debunked it four times on its own. But it's the argument that the EU somehow stops uh, the UK from renationalizing the railways. Now, we've heard this multiple times, um, and every time I engage with someone who claims to know what exactly is going on, the same things appear. That the EU has specified within a treaty for the European Union that we cannot uh, nationalise a railway service. Despite the obvious facts that uh, other countries have national railway service, Germany in particular, and France, and they themselves do have organisations based in those countries that also take on franchises here in the UK. Granted, great. But the, and the reason for that is because of EU competition. The idea is that at all points, uh, any competition process should be open to anybody who can deliver the service. And, the, and it's up to individual member states to decide uh, on who can deliver the service and specifically the criteria that they themselves will look on. It's not good enough to get the lowest cost, for example, because otherwise you get things like Carillion happen. It's got to have um, something like the most, most economically advantageous tender, or possibly the lowest cost if it's absolutely um, commoditized. Right? It's for everything that uh, gets sold is exactly the same. But you do get some people who seem to have read TFEU and have interpreted it completely differently to how it was written, and so in the spirit of why the law exists. So, one prime example is a chap I uh, came across on Twitter. Um, he mentioned that uh, TFEU just reeled off a number of different um, uh, clauses within TFEU. Um, he stated that TFEU stops nationalisation because of these particular clauses. And some of the ones he cited, um, frankly, were taken out of context, as is often the case when people read the uh, legal documents. And of course, they don't understand the procurement process. And that's key to all of this. When governments of all member states, and even before um, TFEU was written, that included us, tender out for contracts. The aim is to make sure the contracts are fair and open for uh, Contracts above, above, no, excuse me, contracts above a particular value. It's only the OJU standards, or rather the OJU thresholds, that are set in stone. Every other area is entirely up to us. The process we go through to procure any scoring models, any choices of any quality metrics, especially in the case of uh, the most economically advantageous tenders, or meat tenders, if you like. But those processes only apply to private sector organisations engaging with public service delivery. That's it. It doesn't apply to a public company. Why? Because it's a public company. A public services company, to be fair. Uh, an organisation set up within the bounds of public services to deliver value to the taxpayer at all points. 
That is distinctly different from a private sector company who is delivering public service activity. It's completely different. And that's why, you, for one major reason why you have to have free and open competition, you have to allow the public sector to get the best value for money for every pound that they spend. So as we've established, public service companies, those owned by the government and run by the government, aren't subject to the same rules as private enterprises. And the TFEU in particular does not, uh, sorry, makes a stark distinction between the two types of organisation. Uh, and I think this is key to where that confusion exists with most people. And I'll just read you a couple of, um, or in fact, I will just reference a couple of cl uh, clauses within TFEU. Um, specifically, Article 109, the scope, which states that the, the Council, on a proposal from the Commission and after consulting the European Parliament, may make any appropriate regulations for the application of Articles 107 and 108, and may in particular determine the conditions in which Article 108, subsection 3, or closely rather, shall apply, and the category of aid exemption from this procedure. Now you'll note that that is with reference to state aid for organisations. That's one of the clauses that was, that was um, certainly thrown at me as if that was justification, but look, look, this is state aid. It is public money. State aid, you're giving public money to often a private sector organisation, for the purposes of encouraging them to, I don't know, uh, keep people here. I'm looking at you, Nissan, and yes, you did take 11-odd million from the government last year, saw it in your accounts, can't hide that one from me. Or it might be for the purposes of generating economic activity, one way or another. So sometimes you'll get state aid, um, if you like, schemes or programmes which will attempt to... Uh, funds small business activity or innovation and you do get that sort of stuff from Innovate UK who you know whilst getting some money from uh, a scheme like Horizon 2020 will also have some money from the UK government to do exactly that. Uh, another clause that was referenced was um, competition A106 article 106 and in that particular case that references uh, the public undertakings and undertakings which member states grant special or exclusive rights to. The key with this one, though, is that, again, this does not uh, apply to member states' own public service departments. Not the public service departments, not the public service organisations, or anything like that. But the key point of interest in Article 106 is 106 Clause 3. That states, the Commission shall ensure the application of the provisions of this article and shall, where necessary, address appropriate directives or decisions to Member States. Note the last sentence here. Address appropriate directives or decisions to Member States. For those of you that are familiar with EU law, it really falls into four main areas. Regulations in particular, are the ones that in essence dictates. So the GDPR, as is topically coming into, into force ooh, in three days' time, or officially into force in three days' time, we're in a two-year transition period at the moment. That is a regulation. That takes it as a full and complete law and is more or less copied into UK law. 
By comparison, a directive dictates what the outcome should be, but it leaves member states to use their own constitutional uh, mechanisms and their statute and their body of case law to make that compatibility happen. Does that make sense? So, in essence, that means that any points which result in a directive being followed are actually procedurally created by the, in the individual member state. And that means anything that allows this directive to be followed, or anything that allows any directive to be followed, is created by, in our case, the United Kingdom government. And that's key to this. But, I think this is where things get a little bit twisted in some people's heads. Article 18 of the TFEU specifies or deals with the subject of discrimination. I mean, bearing in mind that every single member state within uh, the European Union, in essence, it has to be considered by every other member state as a, a, a as if it's a, lo a local company. That means all competition, all contracts, all tenders, all have to be open to a potentially European audience. They don't have to publish it that far afield. Um, and of course, there are um, ways of making sure that you get a local supplier to that. And indeed, there, there's nothing to stop any member state, state encouraging local supply or giving, if you like, preferential treatment, especially in the case where people have to be local to, um, to carry out the service. So that's not in itself uh, a, a barrier. Uh, to a member state deciding to choose local suppliers over foreign ones. But um, that said, within the process of evaluating them and or um, putting out the tender, the, the, every organisation who qualifies or pre-qualifies, depending upon whether you're above the old threshold or not, should be allowed to submit a bid. Now, not every supplier will do it. I certainly don't do it all the time because I've, I can sometimes express an interest, find there's something I don't like about either the tenders or the way it's run or potentially the... Uh, I, I may find that the organisation probably could do things a bit better, so I won't engage with the tender. I will pull out. Um, and other organisations will do the same. Um, and that leaves the decision pool to be uh, possibly light of really good suppliers, but also at the same time... Uh, uh, gives the government uh, an open pool of candidate organisations to work with. But, in essence, that non-discrimination is what allows um, companies to take on contracts in other member states. Now, logically, this leaves us with quite an interesting point, and that is that if we ourselves are getting, or oh, sorry, are um, receiving, if you like, uh, candidate organizations from the European Union and they're winning our tenders how much of that is actually due to our inability to provide a service that can score as well on both quality and price as the European counterpart organizations that's not a reflection of our law that is a reflection of our ability as a country to create enterprises that are competitive at a European or EU level, as we've seen by the fairly recent, um, somewhat possibly embarrassing uh, escapade where Delarue, who printed the British passport for a significant period of time, lost out to uh, their French counterparts, who won the tender, 
to supply the UK, though the new UK quote-unquote blue passport. Now, obviously, some people were up in arms about that. Delaware themselves was up in arms about that. They threatened to go to, or to put in a legal challenge rather, uh, on the grounds that it wasn't in the, in the public interest. But realistically, the what's in the public interest is getting value for money. Delarue being um, £190 million heavier than the other uh, counterparts, frankly, they would have lost. And I can't see the situation where, again, depending upon the scoring matches, they would have been successful in winning that bid. And that, of course, means that um, UK companies are now somewhat uh, uncompetitive on the world stage. Now, of course, all this doesn't stand alone. Uh, all procurement exercises have themselves got to be created in accordance with member states' own statute, as I mentioned earlier, but also with the European Union statute. Now, this in itself uh, creates the need for Article 101. Which is the uh, which is a clause that covers a number of somewhat uh, undesirable activities and ensures that any contracts that are, that happen to have let's just say uh, been signed through the back door and or through a backhander or possibly through other illegitimate means you can choose uh, which are your favourite ones to apply. That article ensures that such agreements are null and void immediately. And that includes uh, aspects of price fitting, fixing, price fixing. Let's get that um, right. Uh, limiting or controlling production to basically uh, deliberately set up an increase in price by limiting the amount of production of stuff or goods that you you uh, create. Um, share market sources of, of supply, and also differential pricing. Now, differential pricing is an interesting one because it is possible to differentially price, but you cannot. Um, apply a differential price in such a way as uh, to set a pr- oh, sorry, sorry. to set a price for co- basically for competition more or less to lose out on. Now that means that you set everything exactly the same, basically undercut them for whatever reason. Now that's an interesting one because that undercut, if done correctly could have prevented things like Carillion from happening. But the key aspect to that, and certainly how a lot of organizations deal with that, is they literally top and tail uh, the pricing element. So anybody who comes in unusually uh, cheap, they'll often reject them at the evaluation stage, if it's unusually cheap. But that's the key aspect. How do you define what unusually cheap actually is? Especially in the space, the tech space. One of the key aspects we find is that uh, it's quite a wide variation that you can create within technology. And actually, we can still be profitable when the price is low, depending upon how you play other aspects of your uh, system development, your engineering, how you create your infrastructure, what you do for gain share, etc. So there's a lot of different ways of trying to get around that, that set of constraints, whilst also delivering good value to the customer at the end of the day. Uh, in addition, there's also clauses to stop... Um, Basically, conditional uh, acceptance. So, in particular, oh, let's call it kind of racketeering, because ultimately that's what you want to to stop. Um, I'm not going to mention any any particular names um, who may or may not have been involved in such activity. Uh, Italy, I might be looking at you, um, but ultimately, uh, this also applies to the UK. We've had many many instances where uh, people have handed contracts straight onto their best friends, or handed contracts straight onto their uh, mistresses, or 
other partners in affairs or um, any number of other elements. And, and it's crucial that um, people are aware of why these rules exist. They don't just exist out of nowhere. They have resulted from both case law brought about by individual member states or by companies within individual member states against those independent individual member states who then may have also referred that or requested that, that is seen by a CNH European level to check whether it is actually itself compatible with EU law. Now, that's a kind of two-stage process. Uh, but in order to do that, of course, the uh, Charter of Fundamental Act has, has got to be held, and we're, and we're getting rid of that. So that'll be quite interesting one to see how we enforce such a thing um, on the assumption that this, uh, the Charter of Fundamental Rights is, is removed. Though, of course, thanks to the laws, we might actually be keeping it. Um, but that's quite an interesting uh, set of values, because 101 is, or Article 101 is, aims very much try and maintain uh, the cleanliness, the fairness of procurement. Now, that's a good thing. At the end of the day, that's a good thing. That gives the small companies the ability to uh, compete on an equal footing legislatively anyway with bigger companies. And that's, that's kind of crucial to this because the UK has a very, very large number of small businesses. 99.9% .9 of businesses are micros. And if we prevent small businesses from accessing that market, we do one of two things. The first is that the government themselves want to increase the amount of uh, work given to small businesses because they have better value for money and they tend to uh, react better and quicker to those contracts than bigger companies do. Um, so that would impact that uh, part of the, or that segment of the uh, enterprise, uh, sorry, the enterprise uh, sectors or industry, um, of our industry or any industry, while also they need to ensure that there is a fairness a fair position for these small companies to 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 uh, compete in a fair context a fair game a fair field playing field because if they don't then the, the nature of the procurement process and the often the size of the projects will just mean that bigger companies get it every single time as we've seen in the past for various reasons they haven't exactly delivered to plan and in the case of the railways this is particularly important because if you have a railway franchise that's run by a private organisation or by you know, competed for by a private organisation, which is often 15 to 20 years worth of contract that's given out, which could be quite a substantial amount of money, you don't want a situation where you haven't got the opportunity to evaluate the best in the business who are interested in it. Now, the problem with the UK uh, method of procurement, it was, it was created by the Office of Government Commerce in the 1980s. Or late and that's now under the uh, remit of the of Crown, uh, Crown Commercial Services CCS. The result of that is that those rules are still pretty much as they were, because remember it's a directive. They don't. The European Union does not specify how we should procure. It specifies the principles by which we should adhere to it, and therefore what the outcome should ultimately be, and when certain things should apply. But that's it. It doesn't actually specify step by step what we should exactly do. The net effect of that is that our directive, sorry, our directive, our implementation of those directives is what drives the procurement process in all UK procurement exercise, and it's nothing to do with the EU. And the re but the reality is that we are actually pretty bad at it. We are um, pretty much ninety. We are the, just stone dead last in terms of our procurement process. We are ninety percent more expensive than the uh, EU average. We take fifty three days longer as a minimum uh, to procure, uh, but what we should be thinking about doing is improving that process. But that's because that's up to, up to us to, to, to do. There's nothing to stop us from, from procuring uh, within the bounds of OJU uh, in a better way.
without without corrupting people, or without corrupting uh, uh, and colluding uh, with people in the uh, procurement sector, which we don't. I mean, it, it, the, the EU rules, uh, or the principles and directives, as well as the way that we've implemented those uh, directives, has allowed us to guard against those rather large, potentially um, problematic situations. But one thing we can't do is let that slip. So what does this all have to do with railways? The, that just gives us a flavour of what organisations have to go through to tender for a public uh, sector contract. Another thing I haven't mentioned is monopolies. And the nature of doing railway work especially is in certain regions, those franchises do create a natural monopoly because there's no other railway uh, stock or organisation operating a particular franchise. That's why uh, regulators take a very close look at uh, railways. I mean, any time a natural monopoly exists, you need to have a regulator. But those natural monopolies don't have to be public sector ones. In, in fact, the vast majority of cases it isn't. It has nothing to do with the public sector. And the reason they exist is to make sure that there's been no untoward price fixing, there's been no untoward deliberate demand uh, inflation by reducing supply um, of seats, etc. They are adhering to their particular uh, contractual requirements and their success criteria or KPIs, all, as well as customer satisfaction, of course. You can't forget that because at the end of the day, especially with the railways, it's up to uh, the customers really, more than anyone else, uh, to decide what that success actually is, albeit that, of course, we're taken for a, a ride, quote-unquote, pun intended, um, uh, by those train operators. So, with that in mind, our public services are have a very different purpose to private enterprise, because private enterprise is about making money at the end of the day. That's money for their shareholders, money for any social enterprises, money for their staff, money for their bosses. While obviously public services have a very different focus. And it's that difference in focus that takes them out of the need, if you like, to adhere to the same set of rules. And that's precisely what, what both the UK uh, procurement legislations uh, allow. Because you don't really procure for public service contracts. If it's nationalised, you don't procure. It's already there. Um, if you procure, so if you have private sector enterprises involved in that process, you do definitely have to tend up and then run that tender in a fair and open and transparent way. That's how, that, that's how organisations participate in what for the member states is a robust, tested, effective, when you get it right, mechanism of getting private sector engagement in the public sector delivery of services. That's crucial. So, because they're different, and there's no requirement for a regulator in, in the case of a public service delivery element. Though, of course, arguably, there's certainly a, uh, a need to have some level of oversight and ombudsman service. We need to consider, or we need to remember, rather, that the public service provision then does not fall within scope of the European Union Treaty for the European Union, the EU's treaty, TFU. And that's the mistake. People that I've spoken to, certainly on Twitter, have a tendency to somewhat confuse public services 
with public limited companies. Now, a public limited company is not a public service. A public limited company is a limited company that is publicly traded. Completely different things. Both a private limited company, that's the limited company that we're used to, that is traded, that is set up with shares, has shares. And a public limited company also has shares. The main difference with the latter, especially if they've been floated, is that they now have a certain uh, capitalization or a certain number of their shares are sold on the open market. That means uh, uh, stock markets around the world, including multiple ones here. That's the key difference. The public sector have no such arrangement. They're a completely different world. So the regulations that regulate, the regulations that regulate, the elements of our law that regulate the selling or procurement of services regulate the engagement with the private sector, not the public one. There's no need to regulate the public sector in the same sort of way. The, that regulation comes through our elected reps who we vote for as uh, voters, as constituents. That should become hopefully a little bit clearer. But in any event, I'll probably repin that particular thread, which explains it in a bit more detail, uh, later on this week. So I hope that was useful. Certainly give us more questions if you have any. Um, and I look forward to the next time. Bye-bye. In the event that it did slip, two things have happened. We've either let it go to the wall, as Grayling did with Carillion, or we've taken over particular franchises, as Grayling has done last week with, uh, with uh, Virgin uh, on the East Coast mainline. So the ability to renationalize, rather embarrassingly, at least for Labour, is still at, in our hands. And we have been in that position for a very, very long time. Nothing has changed. Nothing bans us from running franchises when they're in trouble. We could even theoretically buy a franchise back halfway through the contract, depending upon what the contract says. And it's up to the franchise and, if you like, government uh, agreement to specify exactly what happens in such a case. The net result is that we've always been able to protect uh, the nationalised, or sorry, the railway system by nationalising it, but we've just chosen not to, entirely compatibly with uh, the European Union rules. I mean, the European Union are not going to create rules that affect only just us after all. There's no point in managing two or three different sets of laws. They just set one set of, of laws that apply to all member states, let's call them rules more than laws, and those are what uh, all member states are expected to interface with. Whether they're the directives, which is just the principle, and how you do it is up to you, or the regulations, which are specified in detail, including the procedures, as well as the, comp the uh, competencies, i.e. who takes control and who enforces it, and any uh, potential penalties. So the whole idea that the UK cannot renationalize its railway system is complete and utter fabrication. Literally a, uh, a, a barrier to kind of almost stop themselves doing it. If you want to renationalize it, just renationalize it. Um, but the reality of the big, well, I suppose the main problem of uh, nationalization is the fact that the party in power at the moment does not want to do so. So you've got the, the first successful nationalization in a while coming from the, the Conservative Party, but absolutely no aim or objective from Labour to get themselves into a position where they want to nationalize the railways. Because all they're trying to do, all they're doing really is 
giving themselves almost no chance because at, at any point, if the Conservative Party decide to take on a power grab and remove some of the links to European legislation and the competencies of the European Court to uh, assess that legislation, then that leaves the UK in a position where there is no higher court than the Supreme Court to prevent uh, an abuse of power in the UK procurement system. That means, in principle, any company or any department who decide they want to do something that's not so, let's just say, um, kosher for whatever reason, may do so without much recourse to law. And that itself is, is, is dangerous on a number of different fronts, mainly because the European Union will be playing fair, and those contracts won't necessarily just stop overnight. But also, it does lend itself to the risk that uh, any competition within the UK itself may be stifled thereby reducing the likelihood that smaller businesses can enter into the market. So it'll be an interesting one to see. I mean, there's a, the assumption so far will be that, uh, or so far has been, that the uh, copy and paste uh, of legislation will continue. But that doesn't necessarily prevent uh, the, if you like, corruption or uh, price-fixing elements if that cannot be enforced. And that's the key, key aspect. There has to be a mechanism to enforce that somehow. And the, uh, the kind of irony in this is that a lot of these contracts may have uh, resolution locations which are actually based inside the European Union and not in the UK. So I'll keep uh, an eye on this because this seems like quite an interesting one.